Cat. Today's topic is the gospel, and we've been going through the nine marks of a healthy church, and uh, one of the stalwart foundational principles is the gospel itself. The gospel is the foundation of the Christian faith. It is the central core of which uh, your biblical faith exists. Um, The gospel is the blueprint for all that you believe. You get that wrong, and everything else in your Christian life will be wrong. Um, The gospel is actually what separates every religion from biblical faith. The gospel transforms. I wanted to give you some examples of this transformation um, in, in, the, in the history of the church. The disciples. The gospel took 11 ordinary men and transformed them to go to all parts of the world to share the work of, the, work of Christ, whom all but one suffered martyrdom for their faith through beheading, through being beaten by death by clubs, through stoning, by being dragged to pieces, most being crucified, one being crucified upside down, specifically Peter. Um, Some of these uh, details will come out in the Fox's Book of Martyrs if you ever read them. But some of these these deaths of our beloved disciple brothers um, are tradition. I think they're founded well in tradition. Peter was said to have watched his wife martyred before he was killed. At the cross itself, um, he kept saying to his wife, remember the Lord. And he was actually crucified upside down for his request because I think he really understood what the cross meant and he felt unworthy to die in the same way that his Lord did. Andrew, it is said that um, traditionally that he was in a discussion with a Roman proconsul and um, this proconsul repeatedly tried to convince Andrew to renounce his faith. Well, Andrew would not. And because of this long conversation, the Roman proconsul wanted Andrew to suffer more. And so he tortured him even more. Um, and he actually had him tied to a cross instead of nailed, which prolonged the agony and the death itself. So it took Andrew about two days to die on the cross all the while preaching the Lord to those who passed by. There was Mark, you know him. He wasn't actually a disciple, but he was possibly a relative of Peter. Um, He was definitely a close friend and an amanuensis of of Peter and who wrote the book of uh, Mark itself. He was dragged to pieces um, in the streets by idolaters of Alexandria. The Apostle Paul. The Gospel took this murderer of Christians and transformed him to write 13 books of the, of the New Testament, to take on three missionary journeys that took about probably 10,000 miles of walking. He was imprisoned, flogged, five times received the uh, 40 lashes minus one from the Jews, three times beaten with rods, stoned, uh, and then even shipwrecked, and yet he continued. There was also a a young man of, of, or a man who had the intelligence level about, or the grammar school education level in his life about second or third grade, um, a man who attended church with his wife when he got married later on at times would literally want to blaspheme the church while he was in service or talking to people. He was a tinker by trade, and a tinker basically fixed dents in pots. It was very humble uh, uh, humble profession. When he got married, he literally had what was on his back to present to his wife. He was imprisoned for 12 years because he was not going to compromise what he would preach from the gospel later on when he did become a believer. He ended up writing the second most popular book of all England, second only to the Bible. Uh, Paul Bunyan, who was the writer of the prolific um, of the prolific book, Pilgrim's Progress and Allegory, which I actually highly recommend to all of you. There was another individual who had a mother who was a very devout believer, but his parents passed away when he was around six or seven, and he became a slave trader. 
And for many years, he actually abused and traded slaves in, in, uh, in the marketplace. Until one day he became a believer while his ship was going down. He thought that he was going to die. And he remembered the teachings of his mother. He ended up writing <clears throat> Amazing Grace, that hymn that we also know, all know so well, John Newton. In the middle 200s, there was a plague, sort of, sort of at this time right now, I guess. Um, but this plague uh, lasted for about 20 years, they estimate. And during that time in the Middle East, they, they want to say about 5,000 people died per day. Um, they think that it was an outbreak of smallpox, but of course they can't verify anything. What ended up happening was once you got the disease, people just threw you out on the streets. They separated everything from you. They threw away your possessions, burned things, and basically left you to, to die because no one else would take you in. You couldn't eat. You couldn't work. You couldn't do anything. But there was one group that was different, and that was the Christians. If you ended up getting this plague, the Christians at that early church would take care of every single need that you had. They would care for you night and day, and with some who were the caretakers would end up actually getting the disease. But in that, in turn, others would take their place, and the care would continue. The impact of that was so great that if you read some of the historians, they say that Christianity grew best during these plagues because it was so genuine. They could see, the world could see how transformed these people were. I mean, there's, I could keep going on. There's, there's tons and tons of people who have been transformed by the gospel. And so... An educated man became a prolific writer. A murderer became a writer of scripture. Took selfish misfits of, of, of the disciples and they went to the world to basically share uh, the good news. This all happened because they understood what the gospel was. It transformed their life. So let me ask you, has the gospel transformed your life? How has the word, the good news, impacted your life? Well, we're going to... Um, this is the outline. And so we're going to talk about a few of the goals uh, for this time. I forgot to do the slides. I was just getting into my message, so that's why I have to do it right now. These are some of the goals we're going to have that hopefully will come out today. The first is clarity. If you do not know the gospel well, I hope, I'm hopeful that this time will be a good time for you to understand what it is and to have clarity of what the good news of, of Jesus Christ is. Confirmation. If you know the gospel well, I am hopeful that this, this time will be a time where you could reflect worshipfully in the, what the gospel has come to mean for you. And for urgency, I am hopeful to, to you that there is a sense of urgency that we can, I can impart on you. All right. I tried to come up with a C, but I just couldn't, I just couldn't get a word. With, you know, so it had to be urgency. <clears throat> when we get to heaven, there are several things we will not be able to do. One of them is sin. Right? But the other is that we will not be able to be able to evangelize to people. This is the only time we will have to share the faith with those who do not know who God is. So I'm hopeful that once you understand the gospel, it presents an urgency to you. All right. So gospel essentials. When we talk about the gospel, there are four things that are absolutely needed to be the proper gospel. You miss any of these, and it is not the gospel. It is not, an inc not just an incomplete gospel, but it is not the gospel. If you get these wrong, then it is, of course, the wrong gospel as well, too. I recommend a book called The Gospel by Greg Gilbert. It is, it is a short nine marks book, and some of these things I, I get from 
Greg Gilbert himself. So I, I highly recommend it. It is a wonderful read. It's fairly simple. You could probably just do it in an afternoon. All right. So these are the four parts of the gospel that is needed. God, man, Christ, response. All right. So we start off with God, the author. All right. A.W. Tozer said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He wrote that in Knowledge of the Holy, and I'm sure that many of you have heard of that before. So my question to you is, when, you, when the word God comes to you, is presented or even spoken of, what comes to your mind? What do you think about when that word comes? Right? Do you find thoughts of thankfulness, of kindness, of love, graciousness, maybe even the whole truth of the forgiver of all sins, the forgiver of my sins? Do you have a sense of worship that you react when that word God appears? Or do the thoughts of God really not impact you at all? You don't really actually even think about anything. It's just kind of a word that just kind of floats out there. Right? When the word of when the word God is spoken to you, what type of God comes into your mind? Right? It, could be some, it could be nothing. Is it the, uh, the God of the, sun, the Sunday God? You only really think about him during Sundays at church when someone's actually preaching about him or even singing about him. Does the God, the casual God, come to your mind when really... The only time that it kind of comes up to your mind is when you, other people bring it up at different times. Or is it maybe even the spiritual Santa Claus God? It's the God that you go to or you think about when you need something. The importance of this is how you think about God is how you're going to live. Right? And can I even say that you don't really have to examine a person's life too much. You just see the way that they live the daily activities, the weekly activities that they pursue will actually say a lot. If you live for just fun things or doing things to kind of get by the day, the week, and you just talk about work or you just talk about sports, there's really no difference between you and an unbeliever, right? And so what you think about comes out in the way you do things. There's a few things. Sorry. <clears throat> so a few things I'd like for you to remember is um, some of the wrong views of God. One of them is an incomplete God. Right? It's the idea that um, <clears throat> you don't present God in his full characteristics. There is also the idea that you emphasize one characteristic over another. Oh, God is so loving. God is so forgiving. But you forget that God is also wrathful, and he hates sin. Right? Um, there's also the uninvolved God. That's the deist view. He created the world. Now everything else, we just kind of do our own thing. You know, God is loving. He provides everything, and he just kind of lets us do our thing after that. Well, <clears throat> let me read you a quote by Greg Gilbert, and it's, it's, uh, it's a little humorous, but he's trying to address the point that uh, there's a lot of us, Christians included, that don't give reverence to the God that we think of. Right? So the quote goes, You know the best thing about him, though? He doesn't judge me, ever for anything. Oh, sure, I know that deep down he wishes I'd be better, more loving, less selfish, and all that. But he's realistic. He knows I'm human and nobody's perfect. And I'm totally sure he's fine with that. Besides, forgiving people is his job. It's what he does. After all, he's love, right? And I like to think of love as never judging, only forgiving. That's the God I know. And I wouldn't have him any other way. All right, hold on a second. Okay, we can go on, <clears throat> on in now. And don't worry, we don't have to stay long, really, He's grateful for any time he can get. It's a humorous way of us thinking that 
our relationship to God is really all about us, when it really should be all about Him. An improper view of God will give you an improper view of the gospel, and that will lead to a myriad of errors. Some correct views of God. God is the creator. Genesis 1.1. Not just a creator, the creator. Right? Meaning, as the creator, he owns us. And he can do anything to us. Right? When you think of that, you think, oh my goodness, oh, that's terrifying. He could just do whatever he wants to do, you know. You have to remember that God is a loving God, and he doesn't do things just... Um, just, just to spite you, just to play with your lives. He is a very deeply caring God, but at the same time, he does own you. I'll give you an illustration. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm a huge Star Wars fan. Um, and I'm also a big Lego fan. And so imagine the incredible joy in my life when I found out that those two things were put together. Right? There are Star Wars Legos, and I'm a huge, huge collector. And I love building them, right? When I build these Legos, though, uh, there are these sets, but I do other things, and I just try to create them on my own, which is really not a good job. I'm not a very good um, on-the-cuff Lego builder. But the point is, when I create something, I own it. All right? It doesn't have a right to tell me, hey, why did you create me this way? Right? He's the creation. It's the creation. So in the same way, when God creates you the way that you are, and even Brian shared this morning, that sometimes we have feelings of discouragement, that we're not a certain way, we don't look a certain way. Well, you know, God created you in that way, specifically the way that you are, right? And he calls it fearfully and wonderfully made in Psalm 139, right? And so as a creation, you don't have the right to tell God he shouldn't create this way. God is the creator of us, and he's also a creator of everything that you've seen. And he does it with one word. That's how powerful he is. I'll give you an illustration. On this piece of paper, right, let's say I just put a little dot here. Right? That would represent our sun. Right? The size of the Milky Way, then, would be the size of the United States. Right? That's our galaxy. That's the galaxy we live in. That's how massive it is. That's one galaxy. The Hubble telescope um, took a little picture of of a little area area of space, and there's 10,000 galaxies alone in that one uh, one little snapshot. All that to say is God is categorically different from us. We are closer in relationship to the amoeba because we're created beings rather than God. God created everything that you see, and he did it with a word, and he did it out of nothing. Right? There's no such person in this universe that can create something from nothing. You need building materials. That's how different he is. God is holy. Habakkuk 1.13 says, You who are of pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong. First Peter 1.16 says, Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. You guys all know this. God is love. Right? 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is also just. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright, is he. Right? He is all these things, but he is also a God of judge. He is also a, a condemning judge. Exodus 34, if you could turn there. Read uh, verse 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and bounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. 
He is all of these things. He is love. He is forgiving. He is gracious. He's merciful. But he will not let a single sin slide. That is a proper view of God. You need to have this as a starting point for the gospel. You miss this, and you misunderstand the whole reason why the gospel is around. I'm really not doing a good job on these slides, am I? Point number two, man the rebel. If you turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3 is um, Scripture's account of the very first sin of Adam and Eve. <clears throat> so we know that God is, is, uh, is the author um, of everything, everything that's ever created, every, every plan, he's the sovereign of, of all things. Then he created man. Right? And if you start reading in verse well, actually let's back up to verse chapter two, verse sixteen. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, eat of it you shall surely die. God created the Garden of Eden. He created all of these things. Um, and I don't know the theory of Pangaea, if it was actually one continent at back at the time, or there were many. But I do know that there was one thing that God said, Adam, you cannot do. And that was to eat of this fruit. That was the one thing. You had paradise. And God only asked you to not to do one thing. Right? Well, we move, we move down to uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You who will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be des- desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So the fall of Eve started by questioning what God said in in chapter 3, verse 1. Then it progressed to, did he really say that? You know, restatement in 3, verse 4 and 5. Then after doing that, it became, she desired this fruit. From starting to know that it was sinful, she desired the fruit. And then she ended up eating the fruit. But misery loves company. And so she handed it to her husband, Adam, who actually ate. I want you to notice some things in here. Eve had to be convinced. It says in verse 1 that the, that the serpent was crafty and cunning. He was trying to convince her, hey, did God really say that? Come on. You know? Hey, you know why he doesn't want you to eat it? Because he knows it's going to be good for you, Right? kind of alluding to the fact that God's going to hold back something that's good for you. Hey, come on, man, it's not going to be that bad. Then it came to the point where Eve started thinking, saying, you know what, he, I think he's right. It's probably good, and then she desired it. And that's the progression of sin. We change what the Word of God says, what God tells us. We justify it, and then we actually come to desire that thing that we know is sinful. Right? I want you to also notice something. If you look back to verse 18 of chapter 2, 
says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And what of the man called every living creature? That was his name. Right? And you just go down. Verse 22, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The interesting thing that I notice about this is that the command not to eat the fruit was given to Adam. Then Eve was created later. Eve was not there at the original command that was given. Now, could Adam have given it to her word for word? Of course, absolutely. Could God have restated it to her afterwards? Of course, absolutely. But the point is, the, the serpent went to the woman because she didn't hear the word, the command directly from God the first time. Does that mean anything? Possibly. But all that to say is that the woman had to be convinced to be, to be, to be sinful. And you'll notice, right, in verse, uh, the end of verse 6 of chapter 3, when the fruit was given to Adam, it just says three words. He just ate. And he ate. Adam did not need convincing. He didn't need to justify things. He just said, you know what? Eve is eating it. I'm just going to eat it. He never came to her and said, hey, we shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't have done that. Hey, that's against the, the Lord. He just went and ate. That's all it says. I bring this up because... The incredible, incredible wickedness of the sin cannot be understated. They lived in paradise. God gave them every need that they could have. They, they had the, the perfect bodies, physical form, everything. And God asked them not to do one thing. And that's exactly what they did. But they didn't just accidentally do it. They did it willfully. They did it with enjoyment. That is the wickedness of sin. Because of that, man is born a sinner. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When Adam sinned, his nature changed to a sinful nature. And because of that, everyone born from him inherits that sinful nature. Every one of you, at one time, or maybe still are, in that sinful nature. Okay, we're born sinners. There's nothing that you can do to change that. All right? That is an essential step that you need to understand in terms of, of the gospel. If you don't understand that you're a sinner, you don't ever feel like you need to be saved from anything. Right? Well, what, what do you need to be saved from if you're fine? You know, hey, I'm not that bad of a guy. I, you know, I haven't murdered anybody. You hear that, don't you? I mean, I've shared that with the with so many people, hey, you know, <clears throat> I just share them with the gospel. And he goes, you know, I don't think I need, I need the Bible. I mean, I don't think I'm a bad person. I've never murdered anybody. As if the standard of evil is murdering somebody, right? Whereas here, the, the willful disobedience, we all inherit it, right? Every man is born a sinner and everyone is condemned to go to hell. So let me take a little side note on this in terms of hell itself. Okay? Um, <clears throat> just to give you a little bit more information on hell. All right? Um, Romans 2.8 says, But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. It is a guaranteed promise. If you don't know Christ, you will go to hell. Right? A little bit of a... A misconception about hell. I know that uh, some people think that it's like Dante's Inferno. There's different levels of hell. That's not what scripture says. Right? Scripture never describes it as levels of hell. So that is an erroneous view of hell. Another erroneous view of hell is that people think that once we go to hell, or if you go to hell, the demons will be torturing the people who are there. That's erroneous. Because the demons and Satan will be suffering in hell as much as those who are un, unrepentant, right? 
Satan and the demons do not rule hell at all. They are the participants in it. All right? The Bible actually does not give too much by way of description of hell. All right? We know that it is a place of burning, according to Mark chapter 9, 43. Right? We know that it is a place of darkness, according to Matthew 22, 13. It is associated with intense grief, meaning intense agony. Right? In this place of horror, as according to Mark, 5, Mark 9, verse 44, hell is a real place, hell is eternal, right? And your sins fuel hell. The more you sin, the more you suffer. It is just. Every sin that you ever committed will be paid for in that manner, right? Matthew 11 um, 21 to 22 says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Again, it's the idea that however many sins you commit in this world, every one of them has to be paid for. So for those of you who think you can do it in secret, or for those of you who know unbelievers who think, ah, I'm not hurting anybody, I'm just doing my own thing, doing their sin in secret, every one of those count. Okay? Well, the dilemma comes is that we have God who expects a perfect standard to be in heaven, and a man who is unable now to do anything righteous. He cannot save himself. Right? God must punish sin, since he is a just God, right? <clears throat> All right, let's move on. I could probably spend more time saying stuff, but I will move on. Jesus, the solution. Christ became the bridge for us, right? And he was the answer that provided the connection, the solution of how we could not save ourselves, right? There's some aspects of, of Christ that we need to understand uh, in terms of the gospel. Number one, that he was sinless. Right? 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Right? That's important, because Christ had to be the perfect sacrifice, and so he had to be sinless. Christ resurrected. We sang that this morning, right? 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 talks about he rose on the third day. And what the meaning of that was that it showed that Christ had the power over death, which is the penalty of sin itself. You die because you sin. That was the promise of Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3, all right? Only he who created life can resurrect it after death. Only he can reverse the hideousness that is death itself, and only he can remove the sting that is death and the victory that is the, <clears throat> that is the graves. Meaning, the impact of sin, right, the result of sin, he was able to conquer. Hebrews 7.27 says he conquered sin and death, right? He was sinless, he was resurrected, but even a couple other aspects is that, number one, Christ was God. Right, Colossians 2.9 says, For him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Right? Christ was also man. John 1.14 And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, why is that important? Why is it he's fully God and fully man? Right? Now this is another one of those where in in the doctrines of Scripture, every major doctrine you'll come across in Christianity is a paradox, right? And this is one of them. Christ is fully man, and he's fully God. Well, how can that be? You know, you could either be one or the other, right? I don't know how that works out, but I know it's truth, because I just read you Scriptures that say it, right? The importance of this is that he is the only one who could die a substitutionary death for the sinner. Sin against an infinite God requires an infinite sacrifice. 
Right? Remember the old sacrificial system, you sacrifice for that year your sins in the Day of Atonement. Therefore, either man who is finite must pay the penalty for an infinite length of time in hell, or the infinite Christ must pay for it once. And that's why he needed to be fully God and fully man. It could get more theological than that, but that is the reason why it was important. And Christ completed the work, right? Romans 6.10, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives for God. Once Christ died for your sins and you come to accept him, your sins past, present, and future have all been cleansed. Okay? The reason why Christians pray for forgiveness is to restore relationships. It's not to restore the position. You are a believer from the moment that you become saved for the rest of eternity. Okay? It is once and that's it. Christ died for all of it. Right? Just on a side note, there are some distinctives of the Christian faith that is different than any other world religion. All right? One of them is the concept of grace. No other religion gives you that. You get something for free, for doing absolutely nothing. Right? The other concept is that it is true biblical Christianity is the only religion where God reaches to save man. He came down from heaven to save man, John chapter 1. The word became flesh. Every other religion... Man is trying to attain some type of God or, or get to God somehow. Right? So those are some distinctives, and those are some things that you could probably think about. <clears throat> All right. We move on to the last point, and it's the, uh, the response aspect, the confirmation. <clears throat> the Puritans... Um, really godly individuals, they came out with a system to think through Scripture. And uh, some of the things that they thought about were able to, when they read Scripture, was to explain it better into our own minds. Um, those, Those are some of the reasons why we have systematic theology. Guys who spent a lot of time thinking about systems, how to think about Scripture in an organized manner. Systematic theology is not inerrant. Okay, Scripture is inerrant. And so they came out with a system called um, CAT. I, I call it CAT. It's just an acronym that I've, I've come up with. But it's composed of three elements about biblical faith. Right? The first element is, is knowledge. This is the intellectual part of faith. Right? And the Greek translated is believe that. It's the idea that you can only believe in something that you know, right? I mean, it's just just logical. How do you believe in something that you have absolutely no idea of? If I just gave you a random name and I said, do you believe in it? The first thing you would say is, well, what is it about, right? You want to know more information about it. The first aspect of biblical faith is that it is the intellectual aspect of faith. It is the knowledge aspect of faith. Examples. John 8, 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. 1 Thessalonians 4, 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Right? So the Greek translated is believe that. Every time you see the word, phrase believe that in Scripture, that's the knowledge aspect of biblical faith. Second aspect is ascent. This is the um, your response to uh, what your knowledge has been presented. That it's actually true. You're saying that you agree that this is actually true. What the knowledge has been presented to you. The Greek translated is always something of a, a believe a person or a proposition when you come across in scripture. Right, some examples. Romans 4.3 says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was 
counted to him as righteousness. Abraham, person, is God. John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Again, it's the idea of, of, of who God is, right? And so, knowledge you need to know what you believe. Assent, you need to actually say that that knowledge is true. But knowledge and assent is not enough for biblical faith to be to be accurate and true. James 2.19 says, You, meaning the demons, believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Right? Did you re- do you realize that the demons have a perfect knowledge of who Christ is? You look at some of the interactions, they know he's the son of God. And God said, you cannot say anything. Read, read uh, Mark chapter 3, chapter 4. Right? The demons have perfect knowledge of who Christ is and what he's done. But none of them are believers, right? Knowledge is needed. You need to ascend. You need to ascribe that that knowledge is true. But the crux of the matter, the true test of your faith, is trust. Right? Trust is the volitional response to what you know and what you have agreed upon is true. Right? The Greek translated is believe in, believe on, believe. Examples would be Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Right? And I listed a couple other things as well too. Cat illustrates the response to the gospel. Right? A lot of times, maybe you have experienced it yourself. I was in a Sunday school class in eighth grade for, with about 19 people. Out of that class, only two people are actually still walking with the Lord, me and my good friend over in uh, Torrance. Right? Everyone was excited. You know, We had a lot of fun together. We talked about Christian things, but they're all gone. When I was an inner high leader, we had a group in my old church. It was eighth and ninth graders. There was a group of about maybe 12, 13. I mean, we spent all day, all night together at church. They would come over. We would have tons of fun. We spent so much time with these guys. We talked about so many things. Not a single one of them are going to church right now, much less even professing their faith. Well, why is that? Because they didn't know? Absolutely not. They had the knowledge. They even agreed that the scriptures were true, but they never put their trust in them. They never put their trust in what they believe. A believer will always bear fruit. An unbeliever will not. Let me segue to this last thing, and, and I'll end up in. I'll, um, I'll end this in a little bit. Um, the one of the biggest dangers of being in the church for a long time is that you could be a disguised unbeliever. You may be sitting here right now. Right? So I cannot come here and tell you you're not a believer. Um, I could tell you how you've been living and maybe, maybe confront you on it. But there's, there's a couple of things that I think that are telltale signs of unbelief within an individual. The number one thing to me is a heart of unforgiveness. Right, I did this little simple calculation. Um, if you sin once a day, all right, once a day, and I think that that's actually being very conservative. I think most of us can admit to sinning more than once a day. In ten years, right, simple math, you sin about three thousand six hundred times. You do that for twenty years, that's seven thousand two hundred, and then you do forty years, fourteen thousand four hundred, and of course, it goes on and on. You think about that, and the Lord has forgiven you for thousands of sins. Thousands. We're not talking a few here and there. Thousands. If you have somebody that's done something wrong to you, whether you think they did the wrong or they actually did the wrong, and you're having a hard time forgiving one, three, five, let's even, let's even go up to 50 or 100. Let's say they sinned against you that many times, and you're having a hard time forgiving, you truly don't understand what the gospel is. Getting to know God 
The more and more you do it, the more and more you become like him. The more and more you become like him, the more and more forgiving you become. That expression, you are never more like Christ than when you forgive is absolutely true. I would say the other thing is a lack of, of growth. I know that seems kind of simple, but when you look at a, in an individual, or maybe even for yourself, have you actually grown in your Christian life? I could understand if you became a Christian a week ago. It's hard to quantify that. But if you've been a, a part of the church or a professing believer for a couple years, five years, ten years, we all struggle with things. I struggle with things as well, too. But have you shown progress, right? And so my question is, are you struggling with that? Or is that your way of life? The way that I would determine the difference is, is there progress? We're not talking about you've completely conquered it. I hope so, whatever sin that may be. But is there progress to getting better, not repeating that so often? Last thing is you don't desire to talk about it. What exactly do you actually spend in your life, in your week? Um, the expression, if it talks like a duck, looks like a duck, and walks like a duck, then surely the conclusion must be it must be a duck. If you talk about things that unbelievers talk about, you participate in things that unbelievers joyfully participate in, and you do the things that unbelievers do, and you never really show anything in terms of what is it really different about you other than going to church on Sunday, you might want to consider thinking about these things. And, you know, my, my point here is not to bring down uh, difficulty on you and make, you know, point at you and say, oh, you need to do better. I'm trying to tell you that the progress of Scripture, the progress of the gospel in your life is that it's a, is, is, is a joyful response. All right, let me uh, end with this. Actually, let me <laughs> add this. One of the exercises that I give to people when I meet in small groups or I meet in, in itself is try to explain to me the gospel in one sentence. This is my definition that's coming up. It's not the perfect definition. It's not the greatest definition in the world. The exercise's point is for you to think about the gospel so that when you talk about it or you write it down, you can understand it better. So this is my simple explanation. Right? And so you could have your own version of this, but I recommend you to do it. Right? It's a good exercise for you to think about. It's a good thing to talk about in your small group. All right, gospel takeaways, and I'll end with this. The gospel starts with a high view of God. You don't have a high view of God, and you've, you've missed the point. It can't even go anywhere. The gospel exists because of the willful sinful man, sinful man. We had paradise. Adam and Eve had paradise. And the one thing they, didn't, they could not do is the one thing they did it with joy. The gospel culminates in the actions of Christ. God loves us so much that he did not want all of humanity, his creation, to go to hell forever. And the gospel completes with a transformed response. The validation of your commitment, of your profession, if it does not show in your life, is not a true gospel. You are not a believer. Okay? Your life is the testimonial, how you live. If you don't have that, and you can explain the gospel to me in and out in terms of all the points and the doctrines, you are not a believer. And that is the whole point of this. But the gospel is for you. It's for all of you. Whatever you've done, whatever sin you've ever committed, it is never too late. All right? Our Lord's forgiveness is so vast, it is never too late for you to be in his kingdom. All right? You, there's nothing you've ever done that's greater than his forgiveness. You could be living in sin for 20, 30, 50 years. He will be glad to forgive you. And I end with this, with this personal illustration. Luke 15. Luke 
Luke 15 is the, uh, is the prodigal son. It's an illustration. It's a parable that I read on a weekly basis. It's something that I really enjoy reading. Right? In verse 20, it says, this is after the prodigal son realized he needs to go back to the father. And he says in verse 20, And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I like this so much because the first thing that the father does is he sees him and he feels compassion. He runs, embraces, and kisses him. It is an expression of how much joy the father has for his, his son. Right? This is a parable, yes. But this is Christ talking about it. It's an illustration of God's love to us. I read this on a weekly basis, and I would even argue that I would think about this on a daily basis. And the reason is because the question I'm asked about is, well, how do you increase your joy in the Lord? Well, this is how I do it. I try to remember how good God is. Right? And this is a verse that I read constantly. Right? The best part of this is that verse 21 comes after verse 20. The son confesses his sin to the father after the actions that the father gave him. He felt compassion. He embraced him. He kissed him. Right? That is the image of God and who God is to us. He is so ready and willing to forgive us. Right? And that's how you increase your joy. You keep thinking about these things. It's no, it's no simple formula. If you don't feel joyful in your life, in your Christian life, you can get there, but you have to spend time doing it. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for this time and for the opportunity to share with the congregation. And I pray that we are clarified in the truth of what the gospel is and what you've done for us. I pray for just our own faith that we would show appreciation and joy in the times that we spend. Lord, thank you for this church and all that you do. pray all this in your name. Amen.